be in the book of Titus this morning. Yeah, Titus. Titus of Rome, not really. <laughs> we've been, uh, this summer we've been doing the study, synthetic study through the 13 epistles of Paul. We're just doing a, an overview, not too deep, not too shallow, just highlighting the main themes, points, context, background of each of the uh, 13 letters. And this morning we find ourselves in Titus. Next week we'll be in Philemon and then... That'll be it for the 13 epistles, but this morning in Titus, um, Titus is the third of what is classically called the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy, we just covered those the past two weeks. The emphasis is upon practical Christian living within and with outside the church. So it's not too theologically deep, but it's very practical. Um, Day-to-day living where the rubber meets the road taking what we've learned through Scripture and applying it into our daily lives. Paul wrote this one here, a Titus. He wrote this after 1 Timothy, but before 2 Timothy. So the order we have in Scripture isn't in chronological order. It would go 1 Timothy, then Titus, and then 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, as we seen last, saw last week, was emphasizing church leadership. Titus, the main theme that we're going to see this morning is church organization, church structure. So that's what he emphasizes, Paul emphasizes to Titus here in this letter. This letter is addressed to Titus, so who is this guy? He's a uh, Greek Gentile. Titus became one of Apostle Paul's protégés like Timothy. Titus had been with Paul during his early missions, and Titus was also with Paul on his third missionary journey with the Corinthian church. So it's an individual who has traveled with Paul, learned from Paul, um, received the apostolic authority that Paul was able to give as an apostle. So Titus was a a companion and a protege with Paul. So the background, the culture, the setting of Titus, if you take a look at verse 5 of chapter 1, says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So first of all, Crete. That's the city he's in. In Paul's day, the derogatory term Cretanize came from this city's name Crete. Cretizo in Greek was used to refer to somebody as a liar. So this city had a horrible reputation. It was known to be a city of liars. God selected Crete. It was a very difficult cultural setting. It was to show the spiritual power of the church. So as we go through these epistles and as we've done so, I don't really think we've seen one that has been placed in a set of easy circumstances. God seems to place the believer in a set of circumstances which is very trying. Like, for instance, when we studied Corinthians, there was a Greek term called the Corinthiazo, which referred to the Corinthians as fornicators, so it became a term for fornication. Now the Lord has placed Titus in Crete, and Crete is synonymous with liars, so the visible witness of the church can be in the most hardest of cultures, hardest heart of cultures. So we see through the letters is God seldom makes it easy for the church. The churches on the island of Crete were unorganized. That's why we see here in verse 5, he is to set them in order. And he's to set them in order by appointing elders who are going to conform to this um, conformity of Scripture and run and organize the church the way the Bible has taught. Titus' task of setting the churches in order was to include dealing with false teachers. Look at verse 10. 
It says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning the Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So not only were they to be a living witness, a visible witness, but they were to correct the culture that they were in. We see this also in verse 12. It says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil, beasts, lazy gluttons. So this is the culture that they find themselves in. And one of the responsibilities was to correct this type of behavior. So part of Titus's tasks consist of um, motivating them to change. D. Edmund Hebert, on his commentary on Titus, said this about it. He says, Nowhere else does Paul more forcefully urge the essential connection between evangelical truth and the purest of morality that is in this brief letter. And this is going to be a theme that we're going to cover this morning. Truth versus morality, meaning what God has stated in his word as his divine decree on how we should live and operate, and then the practical application of that living. And we've been seeing this through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, now in Titus. Titus reads very similar to 1 Timothy. They deal with the same types of things, but they focus on different subjects in that same category. Gordon Fee says this about um, Titus. The dominating theme in Titus, therefore, is good works for the sake of the outsiders. So our living witness within the culture. Go to Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul hammers this home. He says, In all things, in verse 7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So it's the living witness that we're seeing. So the true church of Jesus Christ, first of all, must be orderly. Why must the church be orderly? Look at Titus 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So why must the church be orderly? Because of godliness. So what is godliness? In the Greek, it's eusebia. It means godliness, devoteness, or piety. It's awesome respect granted to God, resulting in our devotion to him. So what we are as a culture and we are as a church is a living witness and a living example of how God is to be worshipped and how God is to be followed and how our structure of our life resembles exactly the character and the prescriptive will that God has laid out in the scriptures. You guys familiar with the actor um, Daniel Day-Lewis? He's one of those rare actors that can completely, if you watch him in an interview, right, and you see how he is personally, and you watch him in some of his movies, um, like Last of the Mohicans or he was in Lincoln, he completely transforms. And you have to wonder how much time he takes to study, like when he made the movie Lincoln, how much time he had to take to study Abraham Lincoln and to get his mannerisms down and his tone of voice down and his the way he just presents himself. And from what I've heard, when he's making the movie, he never comes out of character. He always stays in the character that he's playing. Same thing from us with godliness. Now let's translate this over to the scriptures. How 
careful and how slow and how much time do we spend meditating on the character of God, his holiness, and his purity, and what he has laid out in Scripture so that we can conduct ourselves and transform ourselves, not just as an actor, somebody playing a part, but our own character gets transformed into the godly character of who he is. How much time do we spend doing that? Like the actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, who can completely transform as an actor, so can the believer have their hearts completely transformed so we can become a completely new person in Christ. But the question is, in results of godliness, how much time do we spend staring into the beauty of the Lord, into his word, in prayer, in scripture, so that we ourselves are being transformed into that type of a likeness. So godliness is the end product of the gospel. The church is what has the responsibility of displaying this to the world, accurately representing who God is. Not just biblically, not just doctrinally, but also in our practical application into our lives. So if we take a look at Titus 1.9, the business of the church is to correct and convict those who speak and act against godliness. So it says in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The church is also to counteract the influence of evil people. Go to Titus 2, verse 12. It says, instructing us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So it's always in an emphasis to the culture that we live in at the very moment that we live in it. So right now, Paul is saying it in his day, we say it in our day today. It's taking a stance, just taking a stance. It's not being pushy, it's not thumping people over the head with your Bible, it's just simply taking a stance and being a living witness. So what we want to do when we're focusing on godliness, one very good test that we can do on our hearts and on our minds to just analyze the purity and the true reason for why we do what we do is our motivation, why? Why do we do what we do? Any other reason than to honor God, any other reason than that we're going to honor God and what we do is off the mark. So if you really sit and analyze why we do what we do, is it because it brings self-fulfillment? Is it because it brings us a sense of satisfaction? Now, I'm not saying these are bad things. They're good things. They motivate us to do what we do, but is that the final, is that where it ends? Because I like to do this, because I enjoy doing Let's just use an example, um, downhill skiing or fishing or whatever recreation we do. Do we do what we do or do we come to church because it makes us feel good, because we feel refreshed when we leave, because it puts us back into balance? Yes, those are good reasons to come to church, but is that the final end? Is that the final reason why we do it? Or is the entire goal of what we're doing in our lives, moment by moment, is to honor and glorify God? Is that the end result? So if we take this and we apply this to our hearts and to our minds and to our thoughts and we really sit down and analyze why we do what we do is the end result to glorify God with what we do. That's a good test for this. Now godliness has two aspects. Church history has demonstrated this. You have what's known as scholasticism and you have what's known as piety or piety, however you want to pronounce the word. Scholasticism has to deal with the head, the brain, the mind and then piety has to deal with the heart. 
Scholasticism emphasized placing a deep understanding on God's truth, fully understanding biblical doctrines, what it says and what it doesn't say in detail. Piety emphasizes placing the emphasis on living out God's truth, practical Christian living, dealing with the heart. Question is, which one's more important? If you sit down and analyze it, is scholasticism and the doctrine and understanding the truth absolutely fully as much as you can more important than the practical Christian living, emphasizing the Lord's word, demonstrating God's love. So this has been a debate throughout the centuries in Christianity. Let's just take a look here at scholasticism this morning. The doctrine of the Trinity. Everybody in here familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, we're going to see. So let's just take a, a very in-depth look at this. I remember uh, Steve Smith a couple, well, a month or two ago had asked me if I had any good information on the Trinity. And I sent him Louis Burkhoff's um, synopsis on the Trinity. It was a 14-page PDF file. It must have taken me two or three weeks to read through those 14 pages. Just so deep, so intense, so theological. Just reading it over and over and over because the subject of the Trinity, yes, we understand the concept of it, but really to analyze each verse in Scripture and to really understand exactly how and what the Bible teaches on this subject, it's very intense. So let's try this this morning. If somebody were to come up and ask you, what's the difference between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. What would you say? Now these are important. I'm not just throwing these big words out because it's fun to do. This is, we'll see why this is important in a second. Jesus in the gospel, he's submissive to the Father. Does that mean he's not equal to the Father? The term son, is that about his nature or is that just a title? So Jesus is called the Son of God. Is that referring to his essence, his nature? Or is that just a title that he has? It's an important concept. When you read through the scriptures and you see Jesus is begotten, what does that mean? So if you were explaining to somebody, somebody, Jesus is begotten, does that mean he was created? But that's what the word in Greek means. It means to create, to bring forth, or to produce. What does only begotten mean? Why does one Bible translate it only begotten and the other one translates it as one and only? What, what's going on here? How would you? So these are pretty important um, concepts to think about. The Son, is he equal to the Father? Is it just in his essence? Then why is he submissive? How can God be one yet three? Do we worship three gods? Tritheism. Or do we worship one God? Is this Holy Spirit God? Is Jesus God? Is the Father God? So how many gods do we have? <laughs> Try explaining that to somebody, right? <laughs> so what's the big deal? The big deal, it has to do with redemption. What was required to take away sin? Who can forgive sins? Can man forgive sins? Can God forgive sins? So is that why Jesus has to be God? 100%, right? But Jesus was also a man. Was he fully man or half man? If he was half man, he's not equal to who we are, so his death on the cross doesn't equate. God, Jesus had to be fully man and fully God for redemption to work. If Jesus is a created being, the first created being of the Father. He's not equal to the Father. We lose redemption because he's not God. So Jesus, in a qualitative sense, is exactly who the Father is, but two separate persons. They're equal in every single way, 
but they're two separate persons. Now the question is, why is Jesus submissive to the Father yet equal? How does that work? Remember we said ontological and economical, right? Ontological refers to the essence, to the nature. They're equal. Economical refers to their function. So the Son willfully submitted to the will of the Father. Just because his function in redemption is to submit to the will of the Father does not mean that Jesus is not equal to God. He willfully did this. If you take a look at Philippians 2, 5 through 9, it was a willful act that he did on his part. So this is where scholasticism becomes very important, studying the scriptures in detail, because if you study church history, and we still see these false doctrines today, Arianism in the third century, it's what the Council of Nicaea was on, was saying that Jesus was a created being. He was the first created being of the Father. That can't be. Redemption is lost. Sabellianism. God is one, but three persons. Doesn't make sense. We want to maintain that God is one. So what they say is, this is also known as modalism or oneness Pentecostal, meaning that God is one and he manifests himself as the Father at one point, and then it changes his mode and now he's the Son, and then he changes his mode and now he's the Spirit. It's the one God changing modes. That's how they try to keep the oneness of God. They don't like the concept of the three persons. What happens if we lose the three persons? Again, redemption. Because the question is, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we have to have three persons. You can't deny that, otherwise you lose redemption. So this is why the Trinity, and understanding these theological terms, I mean, they do have their reason and they do have their importance. So you have these theologians who have studied this over the centuries and have exegeted this out of scripture, but now you have the piety movement, right? The emphasis is placed on living out the gospel. So they'll say, okay, yeah, theologians, you guys are smart, but you're up there in your ivory towers. How about 99.9% .9 of the population who is just living practical everyday life? How many people have you ever encountered on the street that have come up to you and asked you what's the difference between the ontological and economical trinity? I don't think anybody, right? So if we're going to get real and practical about this, doctrine has its place, but so does practical Christian living. And normally what I end up seeing as I read this in history and I talk to people, it's normally what the Lord has called you to do is the one you'll, you'll say is the most important. So the theologians, you know, tend, not all of them, and I'm not saying this, but there tends to be an emphasis on doctrine, 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 which is good, but then they lack the practical application. But then you have those people who are a bright witness living witness, cleansed life, doing everything great, but they won't be able to explain the tough questions to somebody who's sincerely, sincerely asking for the answers. So there's a balance. So which one's more important? They're both equal. A perfect balance is needed between the two. Now I'm going to read something to you here from A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, God is infinite, meaning he's inconceivable. We're finite. We're like one dot on the page. That's all we are. God is infinite. So if God is infinite and we're finite, we can never conceive in our minds who God is. So think about that for a second. There's a limit to our minds. There's a limit to our brains. We can only know so much. And if God is infinite, we'll never have a complete understanding of who he is. He is greater than any thought or than any imagination can conceive. Man in his intellect or in his mind will never conceive God. God reveals himself truthfully in the Bible, but he doesn't reveal himself exhaustively. Because if he's talking to somebody who's limited, there's no way we're going to understand everything. But he does reveal himself 
truthfully. So as Christians, we have a true knowledge of who God is, but we don't have an exhaustive knowledge of who God is. But in spite of our limited minds, at conversion, the heart is made able to burn with the desire for God. The heart is able to be filled with the love and the gifts of God. The heart experiences the joy of the Lord. This experience goes beyond anything that is physical or anything that is just cerebral. That God can be known in our souls through personal experience while remaining intellectually incapable of understanding him is described best like this. Darkness to the intellect, but sunshine to the heart. What the mind cannot conceive, the heart can experience. But the experience must be based upon truth, the word of God, every detail. So we see the difference. God can transcend our limited intellects and just show it to us in our hearts. We can have that relationship with the Lord experientially. But that experience that we have, not every spiritual experience somebody has is of God. How do we know the difference? 1 John 4, 1, we test the spirits through the word of God. So we see the balance between the two. But isn't that interesting that even though our intellects and our minds, we only may have a certain amount of knowledge, we can still have a true experiential relationship with the Lord in spite of our limitations. So I find that so interesting as I was reading that this week. So the next question is as far as order, how the church can be orderly. We saw this in 1 Timothy, and Titus also talks about this, about the elder or the overseer. The overall responsibility of order and godliness in the church rests upon the leadership, the elders, the overseers, the pastors, the teachers. They must have a solid understanding of the Bible, and they must see conditions in which the people in the church are living to be able to come alongside somebody to exhort them or actually have them exhort the elders at times. It works both ways. We're doing this hand in hand. But the overall responsibility comes from the leadership. Look at Titus 2.15. It says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Speaking refers to teaching or communicating the gospel. Exhorting through encouragement, being a living, visible witness, and reproving to scrutinize, to examine carefully, to bring to light, to expose. All of these things go hand in hand from the leadership of the church. Third question, what the church has, or what does the church have that enables it to be orderly? And as we're reading through, and we talked about this in 1 Thessalonians, we talked about the imminent return of Christ, which is also known as the rapture. The first coming of Christ has us look back to what Christ has done, to understand our position in Christ, to understand his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And at the end of the day, we just sit back and we're like, Jesus paid it all. He took care of everything for us in a spiritual sense. There are no works that we have to do or we can do or that are required for us for salvation. Jesus did it all. All that is necessary is grace and faith. We rest in that. The second one, the rapture, the second coming. If you're amillennial, you see these two events happening at the same time. The imminent return of Christ. We're looking forward to his return, but as we look back, we see the position that he has set for us to live in at this current moment. 
This is what keeps the church on its toes. It keeps the church fresh. It keeps the church looking for Jesus. And in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Be on alert, for you do not know the day in which the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So the question is, could he come tonight when you're sleeping? He absolutely could. This gives us this future hope. We just took part in communion just a little while ago. What does communion do for us? What, why are we doing this? The bread symbolizing Christ's body, the blood symbolizing, I mean, sorry, the wine or the juice that we take symbolizing his blood that cleanses us from sin. We partake in communion as an act of remembrance and reverence for what Christ has done for us. So as we're taking part in communion, we look back to the cross in remembrance and we will continuously celebrate the Lord's death through communion until he comes and takes us home. So during this time, the church has these two, the past, the first coming, and the second coming, to keep us in order, to keep us in check, to keep us in line, looking forward, not wavering off in one direction as another. As a result, Colossians 3, 2 through 4 says this, I'll read it. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's talking about our conversion based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory, which keeps our mind on the future, waiting for the second coming, waiting for the imminent return of Christ. So this is where the church sits, resting in its order upon the holiness of Christ. Third, so the church must be true and loyal to Jesus Christ. Truth and loyalty. Look at Titus 2.10. Paul writes here, he says, Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So the responsibility as a whole for the Christian church, is to adorn the doctrine of God. What does that mean? Adorn, Greek is cosmeto, means to cause something to have an attractive appearance through decoration. So I think through the word cosmeto is where we get the word cosmetics, makeup. And you think of adorning with makeup, you think of a bride on her wedding day as she's got the dress and the makeup. This is the kind of sense that the Christian is to have with the word of God in a sense of adorning the word, exalting the word. You know, the church is the pillar of the truth. It holds the truth up. This is our calling in our life. An example, uh, I like to go to a, a restaurant in Appleton. I don't know if you guys have been there called Dick and Jones. I've been going there probably since I've been five, six. I don't know how long we've been going there. But I walk in and the cook will see me, so he'll go into the kitchen because he knows I'm going to order a large tenderloin with fries. He just automatically knows. And it takes about 10, 15 minutes and it comes out on the on this black plate and it's sizzling it's got a slab of butter on the top that's melting all over it you got the parsley you got the fries and he sits it down and i can smell i just want to tear i, I have to really force myself to take bite by bite because it costs 20 bucks i want to enjoy it right but it's so adorned it's so prepared and then medium rare it's just perfect each bite i just savor it and janelle will just sit back and laugh at me i do this every single time i go to dick and jones and order one of their tenderloins it's adorned perfectly now Bud's the name of the cook. What would happen if he'd go out back, 
take a trash can lid, turn it over, throw that same steak on that trash can lid and come out and hand it to me. It's the same steak, but now it's on the back of a trash can lid. It's not adorned very good. This is where our lifestyle comes in. Where is our truth? Do we live the way we preach? Do we live out the gospel? We believe it. We're saved in it. But how are we presenting it to the world? Are we adorning the scripture with our lifestyle to show that there's evidence of our faith? Or are we presenting the word, the Bible, the truth as on that trash can lid to the world? It's the same stick, but how are we presenting it? And the analogy I like to use is always up in the jail. Hand out Bibles all the time to people. They'll sit in their blocks and they'll have little Bible studies. That's great. Two minutes later, they'll go over, they'll pick up the phone, they'll call their wife's or girlfriend, and then they'll be swearing at each other for half an hour. So I'll do one-on-ones with individuals, and they'll be like, yeah, we have guys in the block who are doing Bible studies all the time, but the second they go over to the phones, they get on the phone with whoever it is, and they're just cursing up a storm. Are they tr- how, that doesn't transform anybody. So this is how we present ourselves to the world. We have to be very careful because we can have frustrations. We can have anxieties that we're just gushing out. We're not realizing we're gossiping. We're talking evil. We have to be careful of these things. Adorning the word of God. So the responsibility is then to maintain good works, And the third one, in our culture today, responsibility for leadership is to affirm the essentials of the faith confidently. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4 quick. I want to talk about this. Affirming the essentials of the faith confidently. Do we have a biblical example of this? And we do with Peter and John who just healed the lame beggar. Our culture today, you guys have heard of political correctness. It's a term in our modern usage. It's used to describe language, politics, policies, measures which are intended not to offend or disadvantage any particular group of people. So political correctness on the surface appears to be very well-intended. We don't want anybody talked against badly. We don't want to offend anybody. The problem is, who gets to decide what's offensive and what's not? And this is where the problem comes in. Political correctness can be used as a very effective weapon against people who hold to absolute standards of morality. If we hold to something as absolute, political correctness tries to pry the fingers off of of that absolute and tries to bring in, well, this person has been now offended by what you say, so you can't say that. And primarily, we see this today in regards to sexual ethics and morality. Political correctness coming in saying, you can't teach that or you can't say that because this group is offended or this group takes offense. So those who have these absolute standards of morality and it's generally targeted at Christians are labeled hateful and bigoted. So the question is, who decides what's offensive? The Christian, in boldness and confidence, has to be able to confidently present the gospel in a culture that finds it hateful and bigoted. So now in Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John, they just healed the lame beggar. They were just released from jail, being arrested for what they were saying and teaching. Now verse 18 in Acts chapter 4. And when they had summoned them, it says they, referring to the priests and Sadducees, commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, 
you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They just healed the lame beggar. They were just thrown into jail for their testimony for Christ. They get released. Now they're charged. They're specifically commanded. No more preaching about this Jesus and the resurrection. Stop doing it. We just threw you in jail. We'll do it again. What was their response? In verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you or rather than to God, you be the judge. Meaning, who gets to decide what is right and wrong? Who gets to decide what is offensive and what's not? The culture can decide whatever it wants to do. But as a believer and as a Christian, we cannot do anything but preach the word of God in boldness. Not in hate, not in anger, not in rage, but in boldness and in truth and in love. So the question comes down to, are we worried and concerned of what other people may think about us or what they may do to us? Or are we concerned over what God thinks and has commanded us to live? This is where it fundamentally comes down to. Does God make the rules or does man? And what Peter and John were saying is, all right, you guys can decide whatever you want to do. You decide what's right and wrong. We're going to base our decision on what God has commanded us to do and how God has commanded us to live. So look at verse 31 then in Acts 4. It says, When they had prayed, the place that they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Didn't matter what the culture was doing to them, throwing them in jail, whatever. They were going to do what God had commanded them to do. So in our culture today, in the present culture that we face, in the future, and we're seeing this now, we're seeing what are called hate crimes. You can either be fined or jailed, lose your position in your work on what the culture deems hateful. So if they say what the Bible teaches is hateful, you can be fined, or I'm sure in the future you'll see a lot of people being going to jail for this. The question is, will we proclaim the truth in the midst of the culture that we can possibly, play, possibly face fines and jails? Well, the apostles did it. It's what God has commanded us to do. So it's not so much to worry about that. I know a lot of Christians sit and talk about these types of things, is what happens if the government puts more restrictions on speech, you know, and we keep losing our freedom of religion. What do we do? We don't change anything. We just continue on what the Lord has done. Continue on. So the essential application then in Titus in closing. The church's power and influence in this world resides in revealing God's truth comes in two aspects, teaching it, understanding it correctly, and living it out. So the scholastics versus the pieties, the piety, the movements, the difference. Understanding it in its fullest detail, and then practically living out and communicating the gospel. It is the spiritual life of a person that is mastered by the truth of God that qualifies the person for church leadership. Being soul-controlled with the Holy Spirit, with a fundamental grasp. Now, I'm not saying there's a checklist. It's a subjective thing. It's something somebody can sit down and talk to somebody and analyze that person. You know, are they ready for this? It's the person who's mastered by the truth of God. So the main prerequisite for that is spiritual maturity. The power of an elder, overseer, pastor, teacher, resides in God's truth and not in the office. So it's not so much that the person's a deacon, a pastor, a teacher, or whatever, that gives them the power, the power rests in the word of God. And I know we have some church structures and some denominations that say he's the priest, he's the pastor, he's the deacon, he's the bishop, he's whatever. 
That gives him his power. No, it does not. The word of God is what gives us our power. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. There's where the power come from, comes from. It's not in the power of the position. Individuals should trust, but individuals should verify every single word church leaders say. We don't just take them for granted and think, okay, they're in that position. Everything they're teaching is right. No, trust, but verify. The Bible is the standard for all things. The church's success is based upon how well it fulfills its function in the world, not about how many members it has in its church. How effective we are, living, are we living out the word of God in spite of the results? I don't care about the results. Let God worry about the results. Are we doing what we're commanded to do? Leave everything else to the Lord. The church is based upon the efficiency of the people proclaiming God's truth in the world by godly lives and verbal witness. It's the church's responsibility to be organized, to be an effective witness. A term a lot of people like used is a well-oiled machine functioning on all of its parts, being the best minister, the best example to the world that it can be. And the results come from the Lord. So let's finish in a word of prayer. Next week we'll be in Philemon and we will have finished the 13 epistles. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, this freedom that we have to sit down and just analyze our hearts and contrast our hearts to what your word says. And our main goal in life, Lord, is godliness, is the main drive and motivation for what we do based upon honoring and glorifying you, or is it upon anything else? And we pray, Lord, just during this week, just show us where we fall. Show us where we are weak. Show us areas in our life that we don't give over to you, that we take for ourselves. And though we admit our struggles, but in the midst of all of this, Lord, we just pray for that supernatural power, God, that you give us in our hearts. And we just thank you for all of the blessings that we have yet in this country and all of the blessings that we just take for granted. So, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We pray for all of the needs in the fellowship, for Pastor Landon and his family and for everything else, Lord. And we just want to glorify you in all we do. So, Lord, go before us this week, and we thank you in your son's name. Amen.